Listen to this. Expect this stagnation to continue until the Department of Agriculture's January crop report. Exactly as we thought, Randolph. Wrong. Quite wrong. Untrue. They've given this genetics fellow the Nobel Prize. A man doesn't know the first thing about human nature. Ah, Randolph, we're about to make millions of dollars in frozen orange juice, and you're talking to me about human nature. Okay, let's go. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 199 and our movie this week is 1983's Trading Places starring Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. And joining me to talk about it, he'd never seen it before, Tyler Cardwell. Tyler, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for thank you for having me on and then introducing me to this movie because I had I, I it's one of those movies I think like maybe playing seen it or something that I've been like oh yeah I need to I need to check out this old Dan Aykroyd uh, Eddie Murphy movie. Um, so thank you for for making me watch this. Absolutely. So so that is kind of your history with it. Is you like when did you know about it existing at all? Because you're you're right around the same age that I am, maybe a couple years younger. So, I mean, I'll I'll venture out and say I'm I'll be 36 in at the end of this month. Okay. Um. So yeah, I mean, yeah, like I think like I said, like just random clips of stuff, like um, yeah, like like playing scene it or something, and okay. it would show a clip of the movie, and I'd be like, oh, okay, that's you know a movie from the 80s. I should you know I should go check that out, and I just never did. Right. Um. And so. Yeah, until you you kind of pointed out to to me when we were trying to pick out these movies, it's like, oh yeah, let's do yeah, let's do that. That looked good. Yeah. So so this is a movie I saw when I was younger, and I've seen quite a few times now. Um, and it always sort of, it's a movie that I will be reminded of. Um, I quote every once in a while. There's a few quotes, and I I captured a good bunch of stuff. We'll play later. Um, and and kind of talk about. But this was a movie that came out in 1983. It's directed by John Landis. And it's starring Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. And it's interesting to me because this is an R-rated comedy film that was number four at the box office for 1983. Um, it had a roughly, I think, like $15 million production budget, made just under $100 million, made about $90 million, which today doesn't sound like a whole lot, and there's a ton of movies that make more than that in their opening day. But in 1983, that was number four, overall for the year behind like um i think it was uh return of the jedi was number one that year that's um, the small film return yeah, of the this jedi little, this little film you might have heard of uh but but not only is it a comedy it's an r-rated comedy and it was number four at the box office and i kind of tried to look at when the last time an r-rated straight comedy film was even anywhere near the top 10 in the box office and it's been a decade or two since anything has come close to that. Like this was just a different time in, in film. Um, but I love the story of kind of this getting made because John Landis, who is a director that I've covered a few different times on this show um, and other shows that I've done, he was a director who really like hit, uh, hit a stride in the early eighties through like 88, 89 
where listen to some of these that he made. So after doing uh, the Kentucky Fried movie, he makes National Lampoon's Animal House. And then he does The Blues Brothers and American Werewolf in London, followed by this movie. He's part of the Twilight Zone movie. He directs Michael Jackson's Thriller. Then he does uh, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Coming to America. And then it's sort of, the after that, it gets kind of middling. Oscar uh, was a movie he did with Stallone. Um, Beverly Hills Cop 3, which is, most people say, is the worst of the three Beverly Hills Cop movies. Um, actually, not most people. Pretty much everyone does. Um, and he kind of floated around doing some things here and there. But that that stretch in the 80s was just like hit after hit. And he was doing these R-rated comedies or like PG-13 and, you know, edgier comedies that were uh, were really interesting. Uh, plus, he was a horror guy. I mean, American Werewolf in London is a classic horror, but it's got that comedy element to it. He always had this kind of silliness to his movies. He really enjoys... He was... Landis is a student of Hollywood. And so for him, like, to do some of this stuff was kind of doing, like, old screwball type, type comedies from the 40s. And he would get these actors, uh, and he did it in this movie, get actors from old Hollywood and bring them back in. And I love that. But um, this script got written, and it was originally, they wanted to make it with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And they had done, was it Silver Streak uh, they had done, and uh, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. And so you can kind of tell, right? Like, you can kind of see it. Um, Yeah, yeah. And Pryor, either... I don't remember if this was around when he injured himself freebasing cocaine or not, or if there was something else. He couldn't do it. So then they wanted to bring in, uh, the studio wanted to bring in Eddie Murphy. And he was not a complete unknown, but he was not a movie star yet. He wasn't Eddie Murphy. He had done uh, Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And he had finished 48 Hours, but it hadn't released yet. They just had preview releases. But the studio wanted him. And I love, uh, there was a making of documentary I watched on Trading Places where Landis says, so the studio came to me and said, what do you think of Eddie Murphy? And he's like, who? <laughs> like he had no idea who he was at that point. Um, and then they went on to work together on Coming to America, uh, which is a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen that, it's so good. Um, so Eddie Murphy didn't want to work with Gene Wilder because um, the way he put it was he didn't want to just like be typecast or, or have it look like he was just replacing Richard Pryor. Yeah, I could see that. Um, and then Wilder didn't, you know, ends up not being in it. And uh, John Landis wanted Dan Aykroyd. Well, Aykroyd was still young in his career, but he had been around for about 10 years almost doing mm-hmm. uh, TV stuff and movies, but never, he, he had carried one movie to this point in his career. And that was, uh, it come out the year before it was called Dr. Detroit and it bombed. Um, but he had worked with Landis on the blues brothers a couple of years earlier. So they had right. a good relationship, but Aykroyd was kind of thought of as like a package deal with John Belushi. And then John Belushi had died in 1982. Mm-hmm. But I'm really glad that Landis kind of stuck his neck out and said, no, let's get Aykroyd in here because he is the perfect foil to Eddie Murphy in this and like the perfect kind of balance point because Aykroyd has this ability to be both the stiff, straight-laced guy and really kooky and zany. At yeah. the, and he's like, yeah. I don't know how he does that. 
and he can do both. It's sort of Steve Martin is really good at that too, right? Right. Like some Same. guys just have that ability. And so to pair those two together was perfect, at the, especially at the beginning of their careers like this or towards the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. And they were great. And then to have them play off of our two sort of villains uh, in the Duke brothers um, and uh, was it um, Don Amici and Richard Bellamy. Um, <laughs> and they, they are the old school Hollywood and they're, oh, I love them in this so much. The Dukes. Um, now, have you seen coming to America? I have not. And that's, okay. I should, probably uh uh you know check that out that's another one of my maybe you could have me back later on to do when you circle around to the that if you haven't already uh yeah um, i definitely um definitely would do that i i would i have no problem exposing you to all of john landis's 80s comedies because spies like us is another favorite of mine that's Ackroyd and chevy chase that. okay so you've seen that yeah, one yeah, I have, it's been a while though mm-hmm. I, I do want to um, check that one out again so coming to America does have a scene that involves the Duke brothers um, in an uncredited okay. scene where they're playing like homeless people because they've lost all their money. And, and, and it is them playing the, the, the same characters. Yes. Yeah. They're uncredited and they don't name them, but it's Richard Bellamy and Don Amici uh, dressed as homeless guys. And uh, I think Prince Akeem like gives them some money uh, okay. while they're on the street. Um, it's, and, it's pretty funny. It, and that takes place after this film, so if yeah, uh, but that's yeah, it's not it's yeah, not spoiling they're, anything. They're they're down on their luck and everything. It's, uh, that makes that's kind of a cool little cameo. Yeah, um, and and like Landis was really good at that. Landis was always good at having these little silly moments because again, he loved that kind of old Hollywood stuff. And this movie very much feels like it would have been one of those screwball comedies from like the '30s or '40s. It has those elements to it. It's got it's very much a Prince and the Pauper. Um, yeah, kind of retelling. Um, I love. You, oh, go ahead. Have you uh, have you seen uh, Dirty Work? Uh, late nineties. I have. It's been it a while. Reminded, it, it kind of reminded me of that, where uh, Dirty Work they bring in a lot of like older actors mm-hmm. and comedians, and so there's kind of that like, hey, here's the reference to the old school guys, and still doing kind of slapstick, yeah, kind of silly stuff. Yeah, well, it, it kind of reminded me of that a lot. Yeah, and I love having so you have you have comedians like Eddie Murphy, and you have uh, and Dan Aykroyd is a very comedic actor as well, but in a different style. And then to bring in like Richard Bellamy and Don Amici are not thought of as comedic actors, but they have especially Amici had really great comedic timing and delivery in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> there's a story, so we're gonna be jumping around a lot because it's just like. The, the plot of this movie is very basic. Um, the Duke brothers are these multimillionaires that run, basically, um, they do margin trading of commodities. And they decide to have a bet between themselves over if they can, if it, nature versus nurture. Because um, the, uh, the Randolph Duke, Richard Bellamy, is very much into this thing. And his brother Mortimer is played by Don Amici. He's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like it's all nature. It's, it's, it's breeding, it's stock. And uh, so they have a bet between themselves if they can take the guy who runs their firm, Winthorpe, Lewis Winthorpe III, and strip him of his money and everything. And can they turn him to crime and take this guy who's been in housing projects and grow up with no money and put him in the penthouse and can, they, can he run, successfully run the company? 
there's your story. Um, but, uh, there's something about just like the, the way that, uh, that everything goes about in this movie. That's just, it's silly. And you do have to suspend some disbelief of like how they could get away with some of the stuff. But at the same time, you sort of can see it working because like there is very much a difference between the classes and with enough money, you can get away with a lot. (laughs) Um, and it's kind of, it's one of those comedy elements that I don't think happens enough in Hollywood films, making poking fun like that. Um, especially poking fun at, you know, the rich and making them out to be just because, um, the Duke brothers are terrible. They're just terrible people. Uh, like to their core, they're, they're racist, classist. Um, and, uh, they, they don't really have that many redeeming qualities other than their money. So when they lose all of that, you, you don't feel bad for them at all. Right. Um, right. but even like, and the- that, that, that was one thing I was really kind of surprised about how much, uh, social commentary, you know, and, you know, about classism and racism, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, was really it wasn't just referencing or you know making a part of it was like really like no this is it was taking us kind of a drawing a line between the th- different things so I, I was just kind of surprised oh this isn't just a comedy this is this is uh it has a couple different messages in there and i uh, think that's for me that's what makes me remember it is like the comedy is really good yeah. but there's that undertone where it's not preachy about it either like there isn't a moment where any one character, you know, calls somebody out and has like a speech or anything. It's just, it's, it's underlying everything. And so you just see it the whole time. Um, but I was going to say about Don Amici. So Don Amici hadn't, hadn't acted, um, in film in about 13 years when this came out, he hadn't, he'd been doing stage plays and things like that. But, um, Landis wanted him to come into it because what he wanted was he wanted these old style Hollywood actors who had never played villains, who'd never been bad guys. And he's like, well, Don Amici hadn't been. So he brings him in and there's a great story he tells about when he's talking to him about casting him. And there's that scene at the end when they're on the commodities floor where Randolph has the heart attack and like collapses on the floor. And the guy uh, says, what about your brother? And, and, um, Don Amici's character has to say F him. And you know, he keeps yelling and Don Amici didn't want to say it because he's like, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with, you know, the profanity and hmm. what's great is Landis. This is such a Landis thing. And this is straight from an interview I watched with him. He said, so I looked at him and I said, well, Don, it's really important to the script and it's important to the character that he says that in that moment. And so like, I can understand if you can't do it, but, but if that's so I can't hire you. And basically Don Amici's like, okay, I can, I, I'll, I'll try. And so they go to do it that day on the set. And he was like, I'll do it once. I will do the take one time. So he gets everybody to be quiet so he can do that take. And he does it the one time and then won't swear again. Meanwhile, every time after that, Landis was like, so every, every take afterwards, I would look at him and just say, don't F this up, Amici. <laughs> and just, just rib him for it. Uh, and like stories like that are great. This was apparently a very fun movie for people to make. Landis had a good time. Ackroyd's talked well about it. There was an interview with Eddie Murphy where he said he hasn't had fun on a movie set since trading places. He's like, since then it's wow. been work, but I just, cause he was so new to it. It was such a new thing sure. for him. Interesting. Um, and I think it helped too, that like being new, working with somebody like Ackroyd, 
who had a Saturday Night Live background, so they sort of they mm-hmm. could run that kind of stuff the same way. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis was not new by any stretch, but she wasn't a uh, she was thought of she as really, just a scream queen, like Hall- yeah, Halloween, yeah. yeah. So she had done Halloween, The Fog, Prom Night, uh, Terror Train. So she, it, Landis also had to fight for her to be in the movie because the studio didn't think she was bankable that she could be funny. They thought she was only a horror actress. And she's hilarious. She has such good timing. Um, yeah. I think the only thing, the only thing with her, it's her character, she, her performance is good, but the character is like straight out of a, a 1930s movie sort of um, male fantasy. Uh, type thing yeah. like it's not really a character the, that would exist the the prostitute with the heart of gold or yeah. you know it, i i because i, I kind of i when when they introduced introduce her she's like oh yeah you know i i've got my i've got my brain mm-hmm. one of she was naming off her attributes and she said her brain i was like oh, okay that might be kind of interesting that you know uh, and i you know interesting idea to to explore in the movie and they don't other than her just kind of going along with the what the guys are doing and being part of the the plan towards the end of the movie, she doesn't, you know, it's not like she outsmarts anybody. No. Um, in the movie. She just has a plan for her career. You know, oh, I'll, I'll be doing this for another three, you know, I think she has like five years. Something and then like that. She's, she'll get out and she can retire. Like, other than that, that was the extent of her, uh, you know, brainiac yeah, skills. I, f- I feel like uh, it was definitely a character written by guys. Um, mm-hmm. And... I think if you were to, and I don't, I don't think this is a movie you want to remake. Like there's, there are movies that, that can stand a remake, but I think a comedy is such a hard thing to remake because how do you recapture that kind of lightning in a bottle, the moment. But if you were, if you were going to do that, her character, I think would be fleshed out more and have more depth. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, look, Jamie Lee Curtis is great. Uh, I just wish that she had had more on the page to kind of go with. Because you're right. They mentioned that, and then it's sort of like, okay, we're just going to go with her being smart, but we don't see any evidence of that. Um, and, and I the, didn't even really, I didn't really understand how uh, the appeal, like, why is she taking in Dan Aykroyd? Yeah. yeah like, oh, this, you know, uh, food costs money, housing costs money. Uh, yeah, but... You know, so you have to work for it, and then he doesn't really do much. Uh, he just keeps getting drunk and going off and doing uh, doing things on his own. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, just like I think yeah. I had a note to myself like the romance is kind of there, but doesn't really like where did it come from? She she takes pity on him when they're yeah. leaving the jail because she thought it was she sort of was led to believe it would be like a joke, but then he seemed really upset, and so she takes pity on him, but then they just sort of become an item and we don't, we miss, yeah. we miss the journey from a to B. We just jumped right to part D. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, that is what it is. Uh, it's funny because this is an almost two hour long comedy too. It's an hour and 56 minutes. And yet I do feel like there are moments where things are missing. Like uh, the, the scene where Winthorpe goes to the Christmas party dressed as Santa um, I feel like, you know, we missed the scene or two before that where he decides to go and gets the Santa suit. He just sort of yeah. is there and already dirty. 
Yeah, it would have been, yeah, if they had just maybe had a scene where Jamie Lee Curtis is like, okay, look, I'll hook you up with my friend. He's he's one of the uh, the Santa guys, yeah. and maybe maybe even it's part of a, a con thing where it's for, you know, it says it's for, the sign says it's for a charity, but it just goes into their pockets or whatever. Yeah. They, you know, something like that. Then kind of, And then he sees the party happening, and he goes, ooh, I know how to get in, you know, and just something like that would have been great. Although yeah, I will say... Yeah, yeah, but I will say that those scenes with him in the Santa suit are hilarious. Yeah, uh, especially the moment where he's riding the bus because you see him at the at the buffet table and he's just shoving stuff in his pockets, and you have the whole scene where he goes into um, Valentine's office, plants the drugs on him, pulls the gun, but first he pulls the piece of prime rib, and then's like ah. Yeah. Throw- <laughs> But when he leaves and he gets onto the bus and he's drunk and he just pulls, and then you you forget by that point that he had stuffed an entire yeah. salmon fillet into his suit. <laughs> so he just, and Aykroyd even said like acting that was kind of not that hard because it's like well you've got salmon and you've got a beard and let's just combine the two and so he's mm-hmm. just eating salmon through his beard. Um, it's yeah. the, it's ridiculous and gross but like it's perfect for that moment because winthorpe is just so down um yeah i i really have fun with this movie because the comedy is for the most part uh i will say that the comedy is pretty timeless um there is one bit towards the end that probably wouldn't get done today however i i understand where they were going with it um but like the the jokes in it, you get a lot of you you can tell there's a lot of uh improv done. Yeah. And it does make you wonder like how many takes did they have to do for some of these? Because Eddie Murphy probably just went off on stuff. And it's it's a lot of fun. Um what was the the one that made me think of the the leg reveal where uh Billy Ray Valentine and he's he's pushing himself along in his little cart and the cops start bothering him. And he's telling him how he was a he was a Vietnam veteran, which there that right there is where you can see some of that like, oh, it was supposed to be Richard Pryor, because Eddie Murphy is definitely probably too young to have been in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it makes the joke funnier because it makes it more ridiculous that he's trying to get away with that. And then they pick him up and his legs, you know, he just lets his legs touch the ground and suddenly it's I can see and I've got legs. And it's like, how many takes did they do of that? Because I would have been just breaking character the whole time laughing. every Because mm-hmm. it's just so good. Um, and then, like, the stuff in the uh, jail cell with him, too. Because you know all that was improv Oh, I'm um, sure. Yeah. By the way, okay, so so we've I've mentioned some of the main cast, but did you see some of the cameos? I So the, the big one that I... I wanted to point out was Frank Oz. Yep. Because uh, I always love a good Frank Oz. I, I saw his name in the credits, so I kind of knew he was coming. But I thought it was hilarious that Frank Oz is the person who's doing the inventory for what's in Dan Aykroyd's pockets. Yep. Which a year, a few years prior, Frank Oz was the uh, cop at, who was uh, in Blues Brothers, who was giving. Uh, is Elroy Blue, El, Elroy Blues, the inventory of what was in his pocket. So it's like that in the, the they're flip flopped, but yep. it's 
he's giving he's taking away and giving away you know the, the inventory of what's in his pockets yeah i thought I, that was a good little nod to blues brothers yeah and, and makes sense same director same actor and all that love stuff. that so i thought yeah. that was uh, Landis liked to have Frank Oz pop up in his movies. He pops up in Spies Like Us. Um, if you remember that, he's the guy giving the um, test that uh, that the two of them are taking. It's early okay. in the movie, but the um, oh, Edgar yeah. and Chase yeah. have to take that test, and he's the proctor. Yeah, and um, then eye patch. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Fra- I love seeing Frank Oz in anything, and yeah, I love the mirroring of him being the cop here um, in the jail cell. There was a cameo, uh, a blink and you miss it. And it's tough to it's it would be a tough one to tell because he's so young, but it's a very oh, young man. Giancarlo oh. Esposito, a.k.a. Oh, uh, Gus Fring. That's hilarious. He's most known for, but he was also in The Mandalorian. He, was, he had a small part in The Usual Suspects like he's been around, but that's him leaning up against the bars when Eddie Murphy's talking about being a karate guy, a kung fu guy. And oh, he's yeah, so it. young. He's got just a little bit of a Jerry curl going on. Um, uh, another one was um, uh, Jim Belushi has a, a small part. Um, yeah. And I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, also, uh, Arlene Sorkin, who would go on to most famously be the voice, the original voice of Harley Quinn in oh, the Batman, really? the animated series. But she also did uh, so. Uh, work in soaps and a bunch of other stuff. She is at the very end of Billy Ray's party when everybody's leaving. She's the last one to kind of put her coat on. She's the blonde woman that puts the coat on and walks away. That's Arlene Sorkin. It was her first film role. Interesting. Silent role for this. So it's like just random stuff because they shot in Philadelphia, New York. Um, Hmm. So that you can get a lot of extras and actors that way. Um, But yeah, there's just, there's so many like moments in this that, that are, are just, they're, they're classic kind of John Landis style comedy. Like the beginning of the movie with the Dukes is one of those where you, there's that kind of visual storytelling and sort of movie shorthand where these guys are just jerks and you know it because they don't acknowledge anyone that's working for them at all. Ah, Mr. Duke. Hello, Mr. Duke. Hello. Yeah. And they don't even, they don't even look at them and you got like, the procession, the where the the whole house staff is lining the walkway from the door to the car, <laughs> like mm-hmm. every like you know they have to do that every single morning. Every day, yep. <laughs> oh god, and they just they don't even say a word. They just walk right past them like they're not even there because to those two guys, those people just don't exist. Um, yeah. And uh, and then you've got uh, Coleman, who's um, Winthorpe's butler, played by um, Denham Elliott. And he's another one that it, he's not known for being comedic actor, but he's so, he's got such a great dry humor to him. And he's like, he's perfect to put in a movie like this because you need, you need something like not everybody can be Eddie Murphy and be over the top. If you have more than him, it, it becomes too much. And so to have Denim Elliott, who, you know, most people would, would recognize as Marcus Brody from Indiana Jones and here he is yeah. playing this butler and he's I love him in this. Yeah, I that was one of the ones I I, I was like, oh that's the guy from Indiana Jones. And because uh, I think that's all I've the only other thing I've seen him in. Probably. But um but yeah just his his comedic timing and everything was really uh, I thought was really good. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess he is kind of funny in uh Indiana Jones. Like he's kind of a comedic character. 
but he, they really let him go. You know, he, he really got to show his comedic chops on this one. I thought that was really good. Yeah, because Marcus Brody is a fun character for him because Marcus is like just kind of clueless and sort of. Yeah. He doesn't really. And like this character of Coleman knows what's going on all the time. And like the <laughs> my favorite moment with him is when they cut from the bar back to the house with Billy Ray and he brings all the people back to the house because the first mm-hmm. shot is Coleman and he's got the tray with all the drinks on it and he kind of looks looks around and then just downs half that drink, like whatever's left in there. Like, oh, I might as well, everyone else is drinking. And mm-hmm. it, there's just something about like his look of like, oh, I might get caught. This is, I'm doing something illicit. Uh, and I love that. Or even the simple uh, thing where he's he's making the crepe Suzette table yes, side yeah this out yeah and uh just turns around and throws it right away like oh thank you so, sir oh yeah, you, you you could have dessert yourself <laughs> oh well thank you sir and then just cut to the trash can even uh, like all the stuff with the with the house staff uh things where they give him the, their his christmas bonus and it's a five dollar bill <laughs> oh it, it's from both of us yeah half of that's from me <laughs> yep um or what was the other the other good interaction is so Winthorpe is a is an interesting character to me because he doesn't really he doesn't change from the beginning of the movie to the end mm-hmm. but he has an arc yeah and he changes the lead yeah it's yeah. it's weird how he can have a story arc but he doesn't really go through any kind of a transformation he's he's the same a-hole at the beginning of the movie as he is at the end of the movie it's just that you're right. You put it perfectly. He changes allegiances. He sort of, he just shifts his view from being looking down on everybody to looking down on the people that are just like rude to other people, basically. And I found that interesting because I never really, until I was watching it this time, kind of, because I've, I've seen it plenty of times, but I, this time I'm really watching it more analytically and I never really thought about it like that but he's just the same dude all the way through the movie um he does have the one moment that you definitely wouldn't get away with doing today uh and that's him coming into the train car in blackface <laughs> as the rastafarian uh well that and uh oh yeah well for yeah dan Aykroyd. yeah sorry, for dan Aykroyd. Was, uh, uh winthorpe okay sorry yeah yeah uh lewis winthorpe yeah. um but Dan Aykroyd coming in in blackface uh, as a Rastafarian, you couldn't get away with doing that today. Uh, and, I mean, really probably shouldn't have got away with it back then. However, it was a moment as I was watching it and and I'd forgotten about it. And so I was like, ooh, ooh, I'm not, yeah, really, they did that? And then I started thinking about it. And, yes, it's terrible. But it also kind of makes sense that Lewis Winthorpe would think that's okay. Like that character... Yeah would think there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, and in that sense, I understand it. Like, it's still kind of one of those, it's with the benefit of hindsight, I'm pretty sure Dan Aykroyd and John Landis would be like, all right, I mean, it, yeah, it they, was... Yeah, they would probably change that, yeah. It was the 80s, and, and it wasn't as, tab like, openly taboo, but, you know, we shouldn't do that kind of thing. Um but I, I sort of understood it from the the aspect of like, no, this is Winthorpe is a guy that's so out of touch with something like that that he would think that's okay, and like, you know, they go with that. And, um, and I feel like uh, Billy Ray Valentine would be like, 
oh, this guy's this guy's an idiot. I'm just gonna let him. I'm gonna let him do it. Like, yeah, that's a bad idea. I'm gonna let him do it because yeah, <laughs> it's not gonna that... cause the plan to fail. Probably. Well, it, it did, but um, but yeah, he's like, oh, I'll just I'll let him embarrass himself. Somebody else will beat him up or something. Oh yeah, that's totally a, a, a Billy Ray Valentine uh, yeah, type yeah. of thing. As he's dressed as the the Cameroonian prince or whatever or student, um, and the uh, that scene also had um, the Inga from Sweden was uh, not how it was written in the script. It was actually written that she was supposed to be Austrian, um, but Jamie oh. Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis is like I I can't do accents well, and Landis is like, well, what can you do? And she goes, I uh, uh, Swedish, and he's like, fine, you're Swedish, just go with that. And so they worked that into the the, the movie, um, which I think again makes for a funnier joke. Oh yeah, because they had that joke. It was like, oh, well, oh, you're wearing lederhosen. <laughs> She's like, ah. like yeah, because then it, it's it's she doesn't quite get what's going on, and it, it just I I love stuff like that because it's a well written script, but then you get these talented and um, really good comedic minds together, and you can come up with jokes that are even better. Mm-hmm. and and work better in the moment. So that I kind of, uh, I just dug that. Um, and then like even even silly stuff like, uh, and this again, Landis loves these silly moments. And there's like one of my favorites is when they switch the briefcases and then Billy Ray gets up and he walks out and he goes to the bathroom and knocks on the door and they're doing their secret knock. Like that's just such a silly moment and it's so perfect. <laughs> just, just open, open the door. The door. <laughs> Delivered as only Eddie Murphy could deliver that too, by the yes. way. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's a ton of really like just great moments like that in the movie. Um, did you have, uh, did you have a favorite kind of moment uh, or joke or anything that really, that struck you? Cause it sounded like you enjoyed the movie, which is good. Um, yeah. 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 I definitely enjoyed the movie. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I mean, there's so, a lot of just, uh, a lot of, little stuff i think just you know like you know the the knocking the a lot of the stuff we've already kind of touched on um i don't know i just it was uh, there was just always something interesting going on um especially yeah i mean probably if i was going to pick something out it'd probably be the santa the especially you know in the in the bus and eating <laughs> through the beard thing like that just that just made me go oh i i i've i don't have a beard that long but i've i've definitely had food come in contact with the beard and Plus, how many like any of us that have have ever drank alcohol have been probably at some point that intoxicated where you just like you're not even paying attention anymore, like you're yeah. you're you're trying to eat on reflex and. But there's like there's that or when they first bring Billy Ray to the house, and they're showing him around because yeah. oh this is mine <laughs> yeah because like what I what I love about that is Billy Ray Valentine is a very smart character. He's really on the ball. He understands what's going on. And so he doesn't trust these two guys at all. Oh, yeah. And as he's talking to him and he's just slowly grabbing things and putting them in his pockets and like picking up the box of cigars and sticking it in his jacket. And he doesn't believe a word they're saying. And meanwhile, like uh, Randolph is hardcore trying to convince him, no, 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 this is all your stuff. You're just stealing from yourself like both the Duke brothers are. And he's just like, nah, man, this, this, this is crazy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I love that. Or I love, there's a couple of fourth wall breaks. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Where there's just camera. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My favorite one is 
when they his first day in the firm and they're they're explaining commodities to him because this is what up until like up until this point it's sort of Mortimer is more the dickhead of the two brothers and mm-hmm. then you realize no Randolph isn't any nicer he just presents being a nicer person but the way he talks down to Billy Ray especially when he's like pork bellies which can be made into bacon which you may know from a bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich <laughs> just Billy Ray like Spike in the camera and be like, really? Did he just tell me that? I love that. Um, and that's a that's such a John Landis kind of uh, feel to mm-hmm. it. I mean, again, you've, if you've seen Blues Brothers, you've seen American Werewolf, like that was his style at that point. Yeah. Was yeah. to really do stuff like this. Uh, I think that's why I love, like, because I love Blues Brothers. I love this movie. Uh, Spies Like Us is one of my favorites. Um. I haven't seen, I haven't watched Coming to America in a long time. Um, and I haven't seen the sequel, Coming to America, which is terrible naming because they changed two, T-O to the number two to denote the second sure. movie. And it's like, that's that's terrible. But um, I want to see it mm-hmm. because I'd love to see Eddie Murphy slipping back into that character and, and, and all that. But um, there's just something with the way Landis does these these jokes uh even the the scene where he takes the watch to the pawn shop yeah which by the way that's another cameo it's bo diddley uh blues musician oh. bo diddley was the pawn shop guy and uh the um what is the line uh let me find it here where he's explaining what the uh watch is and and here again this is where uh and i, ta- I said this earlier but dan Aykroyd, as a comedic actor being both kind of really stuck up and like stiff, but also can be goofy. He's one of the few people that can deliver lines the way that he does with like, it is the sports watch of the 1980s felt like such a, um, such an upper crust New York version of Raymond stance. Like that's, that's the cadence of that was like what Ray stance would say in ghostbusters. Right. And, uh, Oh, where is it? Because he, he talks about the different countries that the... Uh, ah, here it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the sports watch of the 1980s. It tells times simultaneously in Monte Carlo, Beverly Hills, London, Paris, Rome, and Stad. Which is, number one, Paris, Rome, Monte Carlo, and Stad are all in the same time zone. So it really I only... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those those four, so it's it's London... Beverly Hills, and then Europe. Um, but Stad, of all places, is just a, such a ridiculous place to mention. <laughs> and and then, of course, that gets the uh, the response of, well, in Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. And I love to use that line whenever somebody's trying to explain how expensive something is to me. And that's always my response is to do just that because it's just perfect. Like... And then, and then for the the end of that scene, oh, how much for the gun? <laughs> Which again, you could buy those in pawn shops with uh, no problem back then. Probably still can. Who yeah. knows? Yeah, find the right one. <laughs> yeah, um, it's hard to say if I have a favorite moment. Um, I did think it was interesting. They shot the uh, the commodities exchange stuff at the end of the movie on the actual commodities exchange floor of the World Trade Center. I was wondering about that because it's like this, it seemed too 
I don't know, too elaborate to be a set. And so I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, apparently, they originally were going to shoot during the week, and they were going to have some professional traders along with extras. Hmm. And so they were going to shoot on the floor, and they tried. They went for a day, and trading stopped because everyone was paying attention to the movie shoot and what Aykroyd and, and Eddie Murphy were doing. And so like, all right, we'll come back on a weekend. And so they came back on like a Saturday and shot everything then. Um, but just crazy. They, they brought capitalism to a halt with this movie uh, for at least part of a day. Um, but yeah, most of it was shot in Philadelphia and New York, and they sort of double um, stuff for each. So there would be exteriors that would be shot in Philadelphia, but then the interiors, I think, of uh, Winthorpe's house was actually a location in New York. Um, okay. But the outside was shot in Philadelphia. Um, and then the Duke okay. and Duke. The yeah, the Duke and Duke offices were, were in New York somewhere, which that building was crazy. I mean, talk about oh, yeah. like just straight up rich people building. It it's, had a, Especially that that big room where uh, Dan Aykroyd gets, you know, they have, they check each other's pockets and stuff. That big room oh, with yeah. all the walls, like... This like this is a legit real real room because of how how over the top it is because there's mm -hmm. no way you you could make that work. Yeah. Oh, the men's club. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. What was the other thing? Uh. Oh, man, it was um. Oh, uh, the sofa, like the love seat they had in the elevator. Yeah, was... I saw that. <laughs> like, you don't see that anymore. Um, mostly because a lot of buildings that size have like speed elevators. Um, but to see that where they, they just, they got in the elevator and sat down for the ride all the way down. Like that just, I don't know something about that just made me, uh, made me laugh a little bit. Um, yeah. and, and we haven't even gotten to the monkey, uh, the, the ape at the end when they're on the train. Mm -hmm. So I just talked about this movie a few weeks ago. Um, I was on a podcast talking about top five movies to kind of ring in the new year. And okay, it was, I was this, I always think of this movie as a, a little bit of a New Year's movie. Um, it's it's weird because New Year's doesn't really play like a major plot point, but there's a, the setting on the train is on New Year's Eve. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, so I sort of always think of it like that. It's it's kind of it just for me it works. Um, but all that stuff on the train. One thing I never noticed until this watch through the music playing in that car where the party's going on is just the same song every time. They never, oh, they, really? they never changed the yeah. music for some reason. Um, but you had like, there was another cameo it was Al Franken and Tim, oh, is it Davis? The um, they were, you know, more Saturday Night Live uh, alumni. Yeah. Um, also the guy that played the train, um, uh, he was the one telling him about the ape um, and kind of yelling at him and like. Uh, okay. He was a, um, he had been an airplane. Um, he was well known for being like somebody in airplane. Uh, Tom Davis, Al Franken and Tom Davis were the baggage handlers. Uh, Don McLeod was the gorilla. Um, Steven Stucker, the station master and Steven Stucker had been, he was like an air traffic controller in, uh, in airplane, Johnny okay. Henshaw, uh, and, and the sequel. Amazingly enough. Um, so, but I love the stuff like it's a silly bit with the gorilla. Uh, 
Because why would you yeah. be transporting a gorilla for whatever reason? And then... Uh, and, and the two baggage handler guys are just like... <laughs> I guess there's two. Yeah, they didn't even care. Notice that there's two now. All of a sudden, and no, yeah. no, not at all. Um, it's my turn to drive the tram. <laughs> oh, that was um, uh, oh, where's it? Paul Gleason played Clarence Beeks, who ends up in the gorilla costume. They knock out. He knocks out yeah. Jim Belushi, and then the gorilla knocks him out. And so they they tape his mouth shut and uh, put the gorilla costume on him. Uh, but Paul Gleason. He was originally going, they wanted to cast G. Gordon Liddy, who, okay. if, you're, if you're not familiar with that name, he was one of the people responsible for the break-in of the Watergate Hotel during Nixon's administration. Oh, interesting. Like, not an actor. No. Um, he he had done that, um, and actually, there's a fun little Easter egg in the movie. Um, Beeks, Clarence Beeks is reading G. Gordon Liddy's book on the train. Oh, okay. Um, but they end up getting Paul Gleason and Paul Gleason's kind of perfect for that role because he's another one of those guys that he's one of those actors that can just play a jerk so well. Yes. Um, and this is, this is before he was the principal, uh, Vernon in breakfast club. So like, I kind of almost want to think like this part got him that role of principal Vernon. Or at least, it, yeah, maybe uh, some influence on, it Oh had, yeah, that guy was that movie. We can, he'd be a good fit for this. It had to have had some influence on John Hughes to be yeah. like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to totally cast him. Cause Gleason's just so good at that and being, and it's funny because he's, uh, by all accounts, he's probably a really nice guy. He just, he can come off with that. Look, uh, when he's on yeah. the phone, when he's calling in and the woman's yeah. just standing there waiting and for him to just like piss off and, and tell yeah. her to tell her to leave. Like, it's just perfect. So he definitely, you don't feel bad for him getting uh, left in the cage with the gorilla. Um, yeah. Yeah. He definitely earned that. <laughs> what was it uh, when he, when the baggage handlers come wandering into the car out of nowhere and he tells them, he'll like uh, rip off your face and uh, or so <laughs> this is like, whoa, they went from zero to a hundred in no time. So yeah. Um, that and his the whole thing of uh, at the men's club when uh, he's like, oh, everybody, st-, you know, we, oh, we, we've we've observed a thief and we've mm-hmm. marked the bills. And the whole thing of like, if you if you if your agent has observed the fee thief, you know who it is, right? Uh, he walks straight over straight to Dan Aykroyd, but they had this whole thing of put your hand on the the shoulder. Is like, what was that? Like that's just kind of over the top. You know? Yeah, they they really tried to overdo that. I don't. Um... You know, it's just silly, uh, but the yeah. whole movie is silly, and that's that's what makes it work. Like it's the it's the silly, over the top nature of everything, um, mm-hmm. because you have again, you got a, a an actor like Don Amici playing just this horrible person, and Don Amici is just like there's something about him. First of all, the guy was in his mid fifties for like forty five years, like he just always looked that age, um, mm-hmm. but he uh, like to have him and Ralph Bellamy be the villains in this movie is just fun for me because that's so against type for them. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's one of those movies you just kind of go with. Now here's a question for you. Do you think we need more comedies like 
this because this is an R-rated comedy, but it's R-rated for some language and that's it. It's not like a raunchy comedy. It doesn't go as far as something like The Hangover even. And there is some nudity. Uh, there, you know, there is. See, we see some boobs from a few different ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but, I mean, I do think that you... I, I always like to have options, right? Like, you, you, know, you can always have the a Christmas stories, which are fun for the whole family. And then, yeah, you work your way up to the raunchy stuff. And, you know, you can have tears and levels in the middle. Um, you know, it's... This is definitely one that I, I can't show my kids for a long time, and probably they should just watch it without me once they're old enough. Sure, kind of a thing. But, um, but yeah, no, I think it's I think it's you know you get ca- capture as many people as you can. You know, uh, try to capture a niche market. And I, I think I like, like I feel like comedies like this are kind of underserved because, for one, they don't get made these days because R-rated films are a harder sell. Um. Mm-hmm. And you lose a lot of your audience that way. Whereas when this movie came out, there was no PG 13 yet. This was still prior to that. And so okay, you either had right. PG or you had R. Um, but I think like with a couple of tweaks, this could easily be PG 13. You, you drop a few F bombs and you don't have uh topless women in it. And it's PG 13. Yeah, because really all the especially like the, the topless women, you can really cut those scenes and not lose too much of the, you know, the plot stuff. So yeah, I I, I do think I, I kind of agree with Landis with the the one f f bomb at the end with uh, I'm blanking on the actor's name, but the you know the the actor who only said it once. Yes. Uh, I feel like I do stand with Landis. I think that was a good scene because he it shows right at the very end he doesn't care about his brother like the the mm-hmm. that he's partner uh i thought that was so i think that you know that's your one f-bomb that because you can have one f-bomb yeah. with a pg-13 movie and then yeah you you try to cut out all the rest mm-hmm. uh, yeah yeah i think with some creative editing uh of the script you could easily make and but i feel like leaving it r-rated does kind of give it a little bit more of an edge that you don't get with some, like it doesn't feel sanitized or watered down either. And I just, I just wish that more comedies would do that, you know, sort of be like romantic comedy, like when Harry met Sally, which gets an R rating for some language, but it's not like Mm -hmm. it's overtly sexual. It's not overtly, it's not violent or um, gross out comedy. It's just like, it's R-rated for some language. Uh, even something like um, like a kind of you know Kevin Smith type comedies, Clerks, for instance, doesn't have any yeah. violence in it. Doesn't it's got a lot of suggestive sexual language, but like that's the only thing about it. And I just feel like those aren't movies that get as much. And obviously, you wouldn't see a movie like that being number four at the box office anymore because that's just not right. the type of movie that does it. I just feel like this was a product of the the environment and the film going environment of its time too and i think i i I feel like that's why landis his movies didn't translate well after the 80s because if you look at sort of his filmography after coming to america in 1988 kind of i don't want to say falls off a cliff but there's diminishing returns he did a lot of work and he does a lot of he did some music video stuff and he's done movies but Things like Blues Brothers 2000 just isn't the same as Blues Brothers and yeah. The Stupids or 
some of his TV show stuff. He didn't. He he transitioned more into television series, and kind of doing some one-offs here and there. He did some episodes of Psych, which were great, but it sort of felt like he was perfect to have in that era of the '80s comedy. And he either mm. needed to sort of evolve with the times, and he didn't quite because he you you watch interviews with him. He's very much um, he he understands what he likes, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but he, his stuff, like this was his stride was sort of 1980 to 1988, that eight years where he could just, his style of comedy worked for that era. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I enjoy it. I mean, three amigos, spies like us trading places Mm -hmm. and blues brothers are fun and coming to America. They're all phenomenal comedies. And for the most part, they hold up. Um, there'll be moments here and there where they don't, um, and maybe are things that, you know, looking back at 30, 40 years later, you would do differently in through the lens of today, but in their time, they weren't that bad. I mean, this is the eighties. This is when you put C. Thomas Howell in blackface and made a movie, Mm -hmm. uh, that got released. So like to say the times were different is not uh, it's not out of the uh, out of nowhere. Like it was a very different time to be doing stuff. Should it have happened? Probably not, but it did. Um, and, and then to contrast that, there's also a lot of stuff that is very timeless. Like the uh, the the criticisms of the the classism stuff that mm-hmm. and the racism stuff is still stuff we're dealing with. Ne- you know, today, you know, thirty year thirty plus years later. Yeah. Yeah, and that was he did it in this. Um, they had that uh, not to the same level, but like Blues Brothers has a little bit of that with sort of poking fun at the Illinois Nazis. Um, yeah, I, and, Nazis. and and all of that, and you know, Spies Like Us is Cold War era, mm-hmm. and they're poking fun at kind of both sides of that. And yeah. but yeah, this this movie having these just sort of very overt and yet not preachy about racism and and social classism that uh, I really liked um, and yeah. sort of helps to make it more like it's still relevant today because of mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I did dig that uh, as well, but it's just, it's a fun comedy. It's silly yeah. and I have a, a great time with it and it's endlessly quotable. There's so many good, good clips in this and I captured a whole bunch. I kind of want to play a few of these cause they're yeah. too good not to. Um, we talked about the $5 Christmas bonus because the movie starts off right before Christmas. And I love that because the guy comes in to bring them. Tell me this isn't absolutely rich old white guy moment. They're reading the newspapers when the butler walks in with two glasses of just milk. Mm-hmm. That's it. And he goes, oh, I bet you think I forgot about your Christmas bonus and hands him a $5 bill. And uh, his reaction. $5. Maybe I'll go to the movies by myself. <laughs> by myself. Like, that was not any money then. It would be, and I think it's the equivalent is like $13 today or something. Yeah, I, I meant to look up what the, uh, what, it, what the equivalent was today. but I did look up. Um, so when they bring Billy Ray Valentine into the car and they offer him to the house and everything and a job making $80,000 a year. So the equivalent today adjusted for inflation would be offering you or I a, just under $240,000 a year 
uh, for a job. So not too shabby, not bad, not bad at all. Um, and so after he talks about going to the movies, the, the butler, the, the servant guy talks about going to the movies by himself. And then uh, Mortimer's like, no, remember, half of that's from me, too. Thank you, mm-hmm. Mr. Mortimer. <laughs> and then he, as he says that, he turns to walk away and he's muttering to himself. Ugh, love that. Um, let's see. Oh, <laughs> when the costuming for Winthorpe in the middle part of the movie where he's lost all his money and he's wearing mm-hmm. the clothes that were left in Jamie Lee Curtis's apartment is some of the most ridiculous stuff I've ever seen. The boots that he was wearing, these like platformed white patent leather boots. When he walks into the club wearing that with the fur jacket, uh, he's got Mm -hmm. the fur coat on and like everything is a different pattern in a different direction. Um, But as he's walking in and his former fiance, which again, like talk about the classism part of things. As soon as he doesn't have any money, she just wants nothing to do with him. The mere mention of him being a drug dealer, she wants nothing to do with him. But her new boyfriend leans down and tells her, don't worry, I'll take care of this. And he he calls her. I'll handle this, Pookums. I'll handle this, Pookums. I was like, I had to rewind it because I'd forgotten that he said that. I'm like, really? Did he just say? I'll handle this, Pookums. Yeah, he called her Pookums. So that was getting captured because, of course. (coughs) Um... I have this on a soundboard now, and it will be forever, uh, which is... In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. Good old Bo Diddley. Yeah, I'll have to pull that one out. And then the $5. Anytime someone says $5, I'm like, oh, uh, now I can go to the movies alone by myself. Um, when Billy Ray's in, in the jail cell, and there's the two guys that are giving him all sorts of crap. And the one that's always talking to the other guy just responds with, yeah. Yeah. I thought about, he said it too many times, but I thought about getting a super cut of just, cause that was his only line was just, yeah, over and over <laughs> and trying to say it deeper every time it felt like, um, so that, that made me laugh. Uh, when he's in the, when Winthorpe is in the police station, uh, is a great scene because there again is your classism where he thinks he's above everything and the police are like, and that's the interesting one to me. And that's, that's where you have to really suspend your disbelief, right? Because mm-hmm. it's hard for your logic brain to get around. Like this is somebody who has had money their whole life and has no record. And all of a sudden, the police just believe that this guy has is is who is being told that he is. Meanwhile, you know he would have like somebody there would have known who Lewis Winthorpe the third is. So you sure. suspend your disbelief a little bit for that. But yeah, when he's yeah. when he's yelling about his rights and the guy just strip you little shit before I tell you a new asshole. <laughs> and then we just cut away from it. And it's perfect to have the little squeak of the chair too. That's what really sells that whole moment is the yeah. squeak oh, of the yeah. chair and he points at him. Um, I only got one Denim Elliott clip, but it's such a good one. And it's when he takes the phone call from Randolph Duke mm-hmm. and he just takes the phone call and is told what he has to do to Winthorpe. And he's like, yes, very good, sir. Okay. And he hangs it up. And as he's walking away, he just, what a scumbag. 
It's like, oh, uh, but he goes he goes along with it for a while. You know, he mm-hmm. he plays along. Um, but that was I was like, oh, that's and that was a, a term that I used a lot growing up. Um, for people that I didn't like, so. Uh, well, we mentioned this line already, but it's such a good one because it's it's such a Dan Aykroyd line. It tells time simultaneously in Monte Carlo, Beverly Hills, London, Paris, Rome, and Stad. And Stad. Stad. He's he's really good at that kind of that that upper crust New York New England type of of thing he's doing. And he said in an interview it was because growing up where he did in Canada, their neighbor was like that but worse and so he's like i just took that and sort of backed it off a little bit make it believable yeah make it more believable um and then it it just became the kind of character uh so i I love that but dan Aykroyd. this is the sports watch of the 80s like tell me that's not proto ray stance right there (laughs) it's the thinnest uh uh what, thinnest water resistant watch yeah. ever made, whatever it was. Yeah. Water resistant to three atmospheres. <laughs> oh, and then um, I just love the way he said, Pork bellies. <laughs> because you know, oh, oh, and also the Harvard, was it the uh, tie? Hmm. Um, when he's walking up, he's like, He went to Harvard. <laughs> Again. Ackroyd is like the perfect foil for um for Eddie Murphy. He's yeah, like the cast is great. And you can see why when he was writing uh Ghostbusters that he originally had Eddie Murphy in mind for the character of Winston Zedmore because they had worked together yeah. on this. And like you can see Definitely. it. Now Ernie Hudson's yeah. perfect. The way it ended up working out, Hudson is perfect for that role. But you can definitely see why the two of them would want to work together again. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and yeah, thinking about it, like not to go too crazy into a whole other podcast about Ghostbusters, because uh, the way it worked out, he's very much the straight man to these three crazy, crazy guys. Uh, if Eddie Murphy was the fourth member, I, he'd have to play a, a lot straighter than I think he is. He typically plays his characters. So yeah. I think it worked out with Ernie Hudson. Yeah, I, Ernie Hudson getting to be sort of the outsider um, lets lets Aykroyd uh, be a little goofier, and yeah. plus they the main reason that he wasn't in it was they couldn't afford him because by the time they were starting to work on that, Beverly Hills Cop had mm. come out and he was he'd blown up, <laughs> and so they just couldn't get him. Um, got some Billy Ray Valentine because boy Eddie Murphy is just crushing it in this movie. Um, when so I love the scene where they bring Winthorpe back to the house like after he's uh, tried to tried to off himself with the pills and they Mm. they have the doctor and they walk away and he's laying in the bed and he wakes up and it's that that wonderful false like oh it was just a dream and he's he's all sort of coming out of his his sleep and he all he sees is Coleman (laughs) And then when he when he sees Eddie Murphy and just lunges at him and starts choking him out and and it's just it was the dukes it was the dukes. <laughs> um, 
And one thing I wasn't expecting was the uh, Dan Aykroyd uh, trying to kill himself. Like that got, yeah. you know, I didn't press, but like that got dark really fast and they kind of moved on from it really quickly. And, you know, they but, did. Yeah. And it, that again is a Landis uh, type of thing. Like he, he would kind of skirt that stuff a little bit. Uh, if you remember American werewolf in London, it had some real darkness to it that uh, was surprising. Um, given sort of because it's it's both uh, a horror and a comedy right um but yeah they they don't dwell on it for very long and it's played a it's not really played for a joke either him trying that but but they don't like they don't focus on it so yeah it was definitely something that you can forget if you don't watch the movie for a few years like oh yeah i forgot this goes dark there for a few minutes um yeah you don't have an eighties Eddie Murphy movie without the Eddie Murphy laugh. So you got, <laughs> so that was him as uh, his Cameroonian character. And then of course <laughs> that laugh, um, which the, the scene where he's in the tub and he, uh, yeah. he does the jacuzzi. Um, so then say, man, when I was growing up, we want jacuzzi. We had to fart in the tub. <laughs> That had that was another that had to have been an ad lib, hundred percent. I'm sure. Um. Oh, uh, when he's juggling the the vase, and he kind of oh, oh, do a yeah. little metal luck lemon, and he drops it. Um, I just for some reason it just made me laugh the way they laughed about it. I love, I love those forced fake laughs uh, that you mm-hmm. have characters do in movies. Um, <laughs> You want me to break something else? No. No. That quick. No. And even the butler was no. (laughs) Yeah. And that scene is great because he's like, no, I I believe we paid $35,000 for that vase. Uh, Then we told the insurance company it was worth fifty. dollars See, look. They made us. Yeah. Uh, What's this one? I can. Uh... I can see. Yeah, that's. Mm-hmm. I just love that, or uh, I can see and. I have name. <laughs> and almost, I mean, there's some uh, early versions of uh, Donkey. Yeah, like, yeah. Like the way the way he would deliver that sounds like what he ended up coming up with for the Donkey voice. I can see. Yeah, I, 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 there's several points where I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I could definitely hear some Donkey in here, proto Donkey at least. Yeah. Beef jerky time. I'm keeping that. That's just too much fun. Just just offering people beef jerky. That whole character was so silly. Yeah. And just like offering everybody, just shoving beef jerky in their face. Just beef jerky time. Again, totally. You know it's made up on the spot. Uh, my favorite way to wish people a happy new year. Merry new year. It's just too much fun. Uh, <laughs> I think this is. I want to say this is between. I can see. And. I have name. Where he goes. Oh shit! <laughs> this is that whole scene is just too much fun. So, got to keep all those around, and then of course. Is there a problem, officers? <laughs> and that there's another one of those mirrored uh, moments from um, uh, Blues Brothers. Because if you remember in Blues Brothers, the there's that shot where they they're trying to deliver the money, 
and then all the mm-hmm. all the police point the guns at him at the same time, yeah. and they do the same thing here when he comes out from under the table. So Landis doing thing, and finally I got a couple. I got a couple of the mm-hmm. Dukes because, ooh. so you heard it at the beginning, uh, which is Randolph Duke, wrong, and untrue, and I'm keeping those because you just have to. I need mm-hmm. I need sound drops when I'm playing a game or something, and people do something dumb, and I'm just like wrong. Um, but you also have I love this exchange between the two of them, and this sets up that moment at the end, um, with uh, where he you know he drops the f bomb. Money isn't everything, Mortimer. Oh, grow up. <laughs> that and then I, there was another one I didn't capture it, but where he he says you know mother always said you were greedy, and he's like. She meant it as a compliment. Uh, and then it's just Don Amici. Now, okay. Not only is Don Amici probably, was probably one of the nicer people out there, and he definitely uh, doesn't come off as a villain, but he had the voice, like a velvety smooth voice. Yeah. And just the way, like, these are terrible lines, but, Oh, just probably been stealing since he could crawl. Like just how smooth his voice is. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> when when they roll up in the in the Rolls Royce and they're trying to get Billy Ray inside and he just holds up the bottle and says, Whiskey. <laughs> um or the when they're when they're looking over the checks and you get the Clarence Beaks and he's sort mm, of yeah. like and uh, it's just the trying to cover that up, like. <clears throat> with... And for that, for that scene, I I thought that because it happens the first time mm-hmm. with with Dan Aykroyd bringing out the checks, and they're like, "Oh no, sweep that into the road," or "I'll take that, I'll take care of that myself." Yeah, I was like, "Oh, they're like that's like an embezzling thing, like that that check is to themselves kind yeah. of a thing," mm-hmm. and it turned out not to be that. But as I was, oh, that'd be really cool if they're they're doing that. Yeah. And and capturing those fake coughs like the you know <laughs> no more talk like that and fake laughs are my favorite. So you get your <laughs> and then also <clears throat> and finally and this was another one again. Mortimer is all about no, it's the nature of people. Like you take yeah. Winthorpe and put him anywhere and he'll be fine. And and um, when he compares them to horse racing, it's like it's like breeding racehorses. It's in the blood. And again, oh, just that 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 that, oh, that voice, yeah, man, just so good. Probably been stealing since he could crawl. I want a voice like that, and I get complimented on my voice every once in a while. I got nothing on no Donamichi. Like that voice is buttery smooth. Um, but this movie is, it's weird for it to be the fourth highest grossing film of an entire year of the eighties. I do feel like it's kind of underseen by people today. Uh, definitely. Because I definitely know uh, quite a few people that are similar to you where they, they sort of like knew it maybe existed but never saw it, or a lot of people don't even know about it. They're just like, what's trading places? I'm like, how do you, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, how do you not know this one? But it didn't have, it's, it's funny because it was only, what, a year later that Ghostbusters comes out. And uh, Beverly Hills Cop. And those are, like, everybody remembers those movies. But for some reason, 
one year earlier and just nobody remembers trading places. And it's kind of a bummer because I do think that it's one of the better comedies of the eighties. So I'm really glad you got to watch it. And it was, um, you mentioned, I, I, did I mention it to you or did you mention that you hadn't seen it? Somehow it came up, but I'm glad that it did because I think in our conversation, we were looking at, like I, I brought throughout like, Oh, if we're trying to be timely, like I, I was trying to think of some new year's movies. Okay. I think you threw out. What that about, could be it, yeah. About. Because I definitely do think of this as a New Year's movie. And I do, it, it tends to be one that I watch right around this time of year because of that. It's sort of, I'm reminded like, oh, that's right. You know, Trading Places, the the end of the movie's on, on New Year's on the train, and then I want to watch it. And I'm, I, I laugh every, like I laugh out loud. Okay, I have a favorite moment. I'm sorry, now I remember it. And it yeah. is, it is when, after the scene where Winthorpe plants all the drugs on Valentine in the in his office, and they mm-hmm. have the whole thing where he runs out and he leaves, and Valentine is taking the drugs out of there and throwing oh, them yeah. out, but he grabs the joint and he stuck he sticks it in his pocket and he gets rid of everything else. Then he decides he's going to go smoke that in the bathroom. So he's sitting on the toilet, he lights it up, and immediately he's like looking around and he stands up on the toilet to blow it through the air vent when the Dukes walk in. So he's hiding the moment where he takes it and he's like, I got to hide this. And he just stuffs the lit joint in his mouth. And then immediately he's like, Oh, what a... it's such a perfect reaction. And I laugh out loud. So hard. I wonder, if that. That, I wonder if that was ad libbed. It had to have been. It had, it's, it, it's too good not to like, I thought, that um, him dropping the joint, like he disposing of the drugs and then dropping the joint in his pocket. I was like, oh, that's a, that was that was probably an ad lib, but then it became a plot point. Was, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I think I think the the popping in his mouth. All the way, <laughs> it's it's just because it they show the immediate reaction. They cut away and they come back and he's still reacting to it and like like it's burning the inside of his mouth and that just oh, cracked me up so much I could not help but laugh. It's like that and the open the door like because it's such a silly moment and it's such a great setup and then payoff. And those are some of my favorite moments in, in the movie. I did like um, and I'm, I, I'm, I can't repeat it word for word because I'll butcher it. But uh, Dan Aykroyd, he's, he's gotten caught. The, the Dukes walk in. So it's the four the four of them with uh-huh. Eddie Murphy. And he's like, look, I caught, I caught him. He's got, uh, he's like naming off all the things that he's, you know, uh, you know, it's, it was, but it was like the most, I've never done drugs in my life, but yes. I have to name things, you know? <laughs> yes. I, you that know, was good. Or pills and blue pill or, you know, whatever. or, or the running thing where, uh, when Penelope comes to the police station to pick him up and she says and you were caught with heroin he's like it wasn't heroin it was pcp angel dust and then he keeps saying that to everybody and it's like if you don't know about the drugs at all why do you keep correcting them <laughs> it's so yes. good it's uh, and again that's like that out of touch he just he doesn't understand anything so yeah that that stuff is great this movie is just fun i, I definitely it's um it's not one i think that's on any streaming services at the moment I don't know. Did you have to rent it or anything? Yeah, I I think it was like three bucks on YouTube or something. I mean, it's a it's a fairly inexpensive rental, and it's probably gonna cycle its way through Hulu or HBO or somebody at some point. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's it's worth seeking out. It's worth a three three or four dollar rental for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, I definitely felt like it was worth it. 
And uh, for me, it's one of my favorite um, Dan Aykroyd movies. Like this, Ghostbusters, when I think of Dan Aykroyd, that's what I think of. Blues Brothers, Trading Places, Spies Like Us, like those 80s comedies, Ghostbusters. I just love that. And it might be my favorite Eddie Murphy, too. It's hard to say because, like, sort of the same thing. Like Coming to America, Beverly Hills Cop, The Golden Child, this movie – 48 hours but there's something when you when I read or saw the interview with him saying that like he hasn't had fun on a movie set like like he has since trading places I believe it because there's just something about his performance and yeah the energy that he has with it yeah yeah so uh but yeah this uh, is ever, oh go ahead have you ever seen uh gross point blank uh it's ni- 90s but yes. yeah Dan Aykroyd He's it's not a huge part, but he plays a significant part. Um, oh, he's... that's another that's another you know small Dan Aykroyd uh, movie that I've that I always think about whenever I think about Dan Aykroyd. Yes, um, I love him as Grocer in Gross Point Blank. He's he's amazing in that. Um, you're right. Sneakers is another one he's really good in. I need to I need to watch that again. It's been too long. Um, I just like the first things for me that pop into my head are are those eighties ones, but yeah, he, he yeah. was, I mean, he's still prime Dan. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, this is just a fun movie. Definitely. You, you should check it out if you haven't yet. Uh, if you're listening to the show and you haven't, well, it's a comedy. There's not really much to spoil. So just enjoy it. It's, it's worth it. You're still, even us telling you the jokes and hearing clips from it, you're still going to laugh at these moments. Um, just mm-hmm. be prepared for Dan Aykroyd in blackface as a Rastafarian. Because that's ridiculous, um, but uh, it's brief. Uh, but outside of that, um, I think it's it's definitely worth watching. It's a funny, funny movie um, with, you know, the stakes are low. Like the ridiculousness of they're trying to corner the frozen orange juice concentrate market. Uh, how? Oh, I almost forgot. This movie actually is responsible for a rule, a law in commodities yeah. trading. I saw that on on. on wikipedia yeah yeah uh the eddie murphy rule is what they call it um but it basically is to stop uh firms from using insider information Uh, they can't do that because of this this movie basically um which i think is hilarious that a silly 80s comedy did that like almost 30 years later it finally wasn't acted but they called it the eddie murphy rule (laughs) and just the idea of like we're going to corner the market on uh on frozen orange juice concentrate. And then they lost mm-hmm. whatever it was, $324 million and just lost everything. So definitely worth it. Tyler, thank you so much uh, for being here because oh. uh, it's been a little while since you've been on. Always, always a pleasure to have you around. Um, what are you working on now? What do you got going uh, so, on? So uh, in terms of stuff that people can check out, because you know, I have a day job that nobody can don't, don't <laughs> visit me in my day job. No. Um, but, uh, I, I do a podcast with, uh, uh, my, my best friend. Uh, he is a music teacher, a former music teacher. I just enjoy the, uh, the story of an artist, uh, you know, the progression, uh, through an artist's career. So we have a podcast called the discographers and basically, uh, we will pick an artist and work our way through. We'll start the, the first album that they release and work our way through their whole discography and he, my, my buddy breaks down the, the music, the music theory stuff. I kind of tell the history and, um, 
it's just a you know it's basically an excuse for the two of us to hang out because we he lives in colorado and i live in california now um but we are right at the tail end of our lincoln park series we kind of had to take some breaks just with life and um you know post covid trying to you know getting back into our our work stuff and work just being too crazy which you know we're both managers so we're we're picking up slack everywhere um but we're we're finally getting into wrapping up our Lincoln Park series. We actually just dropped uh, an episode today on the Lincoln Park album, The Hunting Party, okay. and um, it's you know we're just having fun doing that. So if you want to check us out, um, and you don't know how to spell the discographers because it's a made up word that is really long, if you go to discogpod.com, that's our website, and you can check us out. And we're on all the podcatchers, and um, it's it's just a fun time. Excellent. I love the idea of going through an, an artist's or a band's entire catalog and looking at all of it. And, and, and that the bad with good. Yeah. 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 And it's a lot of t- the, the, there's look- so many, there's so many albums that are, you know, Oh, uh, you know, cause we did uh, the smashing pumpkins and there's mm-hmm. that area, you know, there's the prime area of smashing pumpkins. And then there's the not so well-known, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, like, you know, 2000s and stuff. Yep. And we, we kind of go into it with a fresh, you know, fresh eyes and go, hey, no, there's actually some really good music in here. And, you know, here's what they're trying to do. Maybe they didn't necessarily achieve their plan, but mm-hmm. this is what they're. Um, so it's a lot of fun. And you get to really sit down with some music that maybe you kind of dismissed Absolutely. You know, offhand. Yeah, I love I love the idea of doing that, and I like having you know somebody who's got kind of a music theory and and structure and sort of that that background versus you know maybe not the same uh, musical background, but an appreciation for it. So you can mm-hmm. you, you're gonna you're gonna listen to and view things differently than he does, and vice versa. And I like that yeah. too. Um, yeah, and Smashing Pumpkins to... is a great choice. Yeah, that was a, definitely a fun season. Um... And and we always try to approach whatever we're we're always trying to find the good in something. Like uh-huh. we will point out, like, oh yeah, maybe that didn't didn't land or something. But we definitely try to go trying to find the best parts of of of, a, of an artist and not critic just criticize because it's there's too many people out there who just like oh this was bad because it's bad. And right, like it's lame. And and I appreciate that as somebody who does the same thing with film. Like I'm always mm-hmm. looking for the the good things in film. It takes a lot for me to uh, to really write something off. Like it's got to be, you know, M Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender was one that I just couldn't find anything. I wanted to, I wanted to find something worthwhile in it, but it was just it just didn't do it. Um, and that'll happen sometimes. But you know, for as bad as Metallica's Saint Anger album is, there's got to be something worthwhile in there because they're just they've been around for too long. Um, yeah. So I love that, and and definitely uh, Discographers is a cool show, um, and I love the idea of doing it. So very, very cool. Check that out, discogpod.com, yep. or Discographers or Discographers, if you want to phoneticize it. You can, you can do Disco. that. Excellent. Uh, so this show I record Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time, and I put it out as a podcast on uh, Wednesdays. You can get it anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, or you can go to tvstravis.com because I gave it a name with punctuation and all sorts of terrible SEO. Uh, my, my SEO is terrible with the title for this show. But wait, you haven't seen. Uh, there is 
an update to tvstravis.com in the works. So keep an eye out for that too. It's going to look a little nicer here pretty soon. Um, and uh, also, if you uh, if you want to support this show um, in a financial sense, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash WYHS um, for as little as a dollar an episode. Or if supporting the show is you just listening to it, I appreciate that. Any way that you support the show, um, I appreciate it. And and I couldn't, I wouldn't do it without people that enjoy listening. Um, that's a lie. I probably would do it, but not for 200 episodes, which is what's coming up next week is episode number 200. And I can't believe I've done that many. Um, and if you've been here for all of those or even just this one, I appreciate it. And, uh, and thank you. So that is, uh, that's what's coming up next week. Um, keep an eye out on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. I'll be talking about what movie I'll be watching and who will be my guest for big episode number 200. And then I've got some fun, uh, fun stuff coming down the pipeline as well. So, uh, until then, Tyler, thank you so much for being here this week. Thank you for having me and good luck with uh, the big 200. No, thanks. And, uh, as always this time of year, Merry New Year! because that is when we're recording is on New Year's Day. So until next week, big number 200 and the, uh, and, and everything else going on, be excellent to each other. There's been wait. You have to say. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>